right, well, good evening. Thanks for joining us tonight. Let's go ahead and start with a quick word of prayer, and then uh, we'll get into Luke chapter 13. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this day and for uh, just all that you've given to us this week, uh, both in spiritual and physical blessing and safety. And Lord, we pray that you would calm our hearts and our minds now as we open up your word yet again. Uh, today, and really ask you to uh, continue to, to change us to be more like your son. We ask that we'd have ears to hear and hearts and minds and wills to do, and we're thankful uh, that we are new creatures capable of such a task through the Holy Spirit. And we ask that you would continue to help us to be thankful, help us to look uh, above uh, and focus on things above, as our Savior calls us to do. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, last week we saw the regrettable but the repetitious nature of the rejection of Christ as king, and therefore his kingdom. That was a constant refrain, as we had noted in Luke chapter 13. And it's a constant refrain, frankly, in the synoptic gospels. It's a major structural element in the non-synoptic, so in John's gospel as well. In fact, the gospel is essentially divided into uh, the, the time that uh, Jesus can publicly minister in John's gospel and the time that he has to essentially just minister to those within his circle, his disciples, because of the uh, rejection of the king. Uh, and this is certainly Luke's emphasis as his readers work geographically towards Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the geographic and theological epicenter of God's mighty, unfailing, unfolding plan, obviously in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And nestled in the consequences of this rejection are the two sim simple parables that we read last week. Uh, Jesus' question is a simple one in the, in the midst of the Jewish denial, and that is, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? Remember that? And so we saw Jesus uh, essentially then giving us a, a figure of uh, the kingdom and trying to teach us some lessons on that from a mustard seed and from a little bit of leaven. And... Uh, we are to take heart that even though the kingdom of God is rejected now, uh, certainly was back then and continues to be, it is coming and will be the kingdom the Old Testament has been looking and longing for for so much time. And so it's Luke's intent now to remind us that for, for Jesus, it's not a surprise that the kingdom was rejected. It was certainly authentically offered, uh, but even in the Old Testament, there were times that we see if, if uh, God's children were to just obey, um, uh, they would reap the rewards of that obedience. And uh, frankly, we understand that even uh, essentially as the, the, the Mosaic law comes into Israel's hands, uh, there's, there's essentially uh, God's reality that they will not be able to to, uh, under, uh, to, to fully embrace that conditional covenant, those conditional realities, and then, therefore, the kingdom. So it's, intent, it's, it's Luke's intent to remind us that Jesus isn't surprised by uh, this, this rejection of the kingdom and that the power structure 
uh, of Jesus' day, just like the power structure of today, uh, will not be the power structure of tomorrow. And that's an important lesson that Jesus is trying to get us to understand here in Luke chapter 13. And that one day his people will be blessed because they recognize and trust in him. And certainly as uh, the church and the church age, we certainly are, are uh, positionally in those blessings. And we long for those in, to, to realize the inheritances that are already ours. And so uh, let's go ahead and read uh, the next uh, uh, section here in Luke chapter 13, and we'll begin in verse 31. So we're going to look through uh, just the end of the chapter here to verse 35. So verse 31, Luke says, Just at that time, some Pharisees approached, saying to him, Go away, leave here, for Herod wants to kill you. Well, that's awfully nice of the Pharisees, isn't it? Verse 32, And, and Jesus said to them, Go and tell that fox, that's Herod, Antipas, behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I reach my goal. Nevertheless, I must journey on today and tomorrow and the next day, for it cannot be that a prophet would perish outside of Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together just as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. And you would not have it. Behold, your house is left to you desolate. And I say to you, you will not see me until the time comes when you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And so really what we want to focus on this evening is that regardless of the circumstances we find ourselves in, we must remember that there is a mighty, unfolding, unfailing plan of God. And so first, let's see the mighty plan of God. There is no power that threatens, there is no power that threatens or surpasses King Jesus. Now that is critical. That was critical in Jesus' day to remind the disciples of that. And that is critical, frankly, today as we uh, see the, the struggle about us, right? But Jesus' point is, you know what? No matter what we find ourselves in, God's plan is mighty. And it is superlative in that sense. There is, there is no power and no plan that can, that can trump or derail God's plan. And Jesus wants us to understand that. And so the rulers of this world often claim more authority than they are really delegated. It's, it's, we're maybe essentially assuming in that statement that every ruler, every governing authority in our life has that authority because God has essentially delegated that to them. That's Titus chapter 3 and, and 2 Timothy chapter 2 and and Romans chapter 13 and 1 Peter chapter 2. That, that delegation of authority is throughout the New Testament. All right. God certainly is in control. And he certainly sets up. And oftentimes, those who are delegated the authority do so at the abuse of that delegation. 
at the abuse of trying to assume more authority than what has been often given to them. And we kind of even see that in, in, in the last 12 months or so with uh, particularly the, the California lawsuit with many of the churches and going all the way up to the Supreme Court and, and essentially saying, no, the, 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 the authority you know, in the state of California has surpassed its allowed delegation of authority. Now, the Supreme Court isn't necessarily even the, uh, the supreme, right? And in this context, we're saying that God is the ultimate and any authority underneath God is delegated. So we can understand that and appreciate that. And that's what Jesus is saying here. That's why Jesus says in verse 32, go and tell that fox, right after the report that the Pharisees are saying, hey, Herod, Antipas wants to kill you. Jesus says, go and tell that fox, what? Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today, tomorrow, and the third day, third day I'm going to reach my goal. He's not going to be able to stop me. He has no authority. He may claim it. He may try to seize it. He may uh, wrestle all of his efforts towards it, but there's absolutely no authority whatsoever that Herod has in this regard. And so Jesus wants us to be reminded of that. And there's several interesting uh, theories about uh, perhaps what does Jesus mean by go and tell that fox. Well, um, just like today in, in Jesus' time, uh, a fox was often a sly, crafty person. And there's evidence of this usage in both Jewish and non-Jewish uh, literature at the time. Uh, but it was also a figure of a person who thinks he is much more than he really is. In other words, he's an individual who considers himself, or was perhaps maybe considered by others, to be a lion, <laughs> when in reality he is really just a smaller game, like a fox. And there is evidence of this usage in the Talmud and other Jewish bodies of literature at the time. And so Herod Antipas as a fox. Well, I would like to really briefly just kind of bring out this point for us uh, by really kind of uh, taking a brief overview of, of the Herodian family. And so it, it, it's helpful for us to, to kind of investigate, well, does Jesus kind of mean this figure here that, that Herod is, is really thinking that he is more than he really is, and I think so. I, you can even tell by the framework of my point that, that delegated, that those in authority often abuse their delegated power and authority uh, to be the case. But the Herodian family is an interesting family. It obviously interacts uh, throughout the New Testament with Jesus and the apostles. And uh, so during Christ's birth, we know that um, Herod the Great was uh, the ruler, the king, if you will, and Herod Antipas is his son, and Herod Antipas is the Herod here, and the one who beheaded John the Baptist and tried Jesus Christ uh, over to Pilate. And Herod Agrippa I was the persecutor of the church in Acts chapter 12. Agrippa II heard Paul's testimony in Acts chapter 26, and so we have generations here of, of the Herod line. Um, and just to understand the, the struggle of authority that the Herod family really had and why 
I think Jesus is really illustrating that they are truly foxes instead of lions. Herod the Great executed 45 of the wealthiest men so he could confiscate their wealth and essentially continue to claim power. Uh, he had a problem with his mother-in-law, so maybe, maybe that's true for some of us. But Herod the Great really had problems with his mother-in-law. Uh, his mother-in-law was trying to influence the, the next heir, essentially, uh, the next son. And uh, her, her choice uh, uh, was essentially drowned uh, by the order of Herod the Great, uh, though he framed it as an accident. She was seeking justice against Herod the Great, and for that, he locked her up into chains. And so, I guess, you know, many of us hopefully treat our mother-in-laws much better than Herod the Great did. He made false charges against uh, his only rival and had him executed. He wanted to kill Jesus so much so during Jesus' birth, we know this, that he had all the male children in Bethlehem who were two years old and younger executed. Um... And his son tried to poison him and claim the throne. And finally, we come to Herod Antipas, who uh, is his sole successor. So the Herod uh, line doesn't start off well. Um, Herod the Great isn't the first, but he's the, he's the most notable in terms of the time of Christ, next to Herod Antipas, who is our Herod here. He and his brother Philip brought about the downfall of Archelaus so that Antipas could have uh, the title Herod. So Herod kind of, Herod Antipas kind of walks in Herod the Great's uh, not so great family traditions of power struggle. Uh, he married his brother's wife, which was also his niece, which violated the Mosaic law. And this is what John the Baptist essentially is denouncing, which causes uh, his wife to request the, their daughter to request when Herod Antipas says, hey, I will give you up to half my kingdom for the daughter's request that John the, hap, John the Baptist's head be delivered on a platter. And so he beheads John the Baptist. Here in Luke chapter 13, he sees Jesus as a threat. We see that in verse 31 and threatens to kill him. In Luke 23, Pilate could not find fault in Jesus, so he sends Jesus to Antipas, who was in Jerusalem celebrating the Passover. Ironically enough, politically, Pilate and Herod had a strained relationship, and so if we go uh, to verse 1, we see that uh, in, verse thir uh, in chapter 13 that Pilate had the blood of the Galilean massacre on his hands, and so certainly it wasn't very favorable at the time with the Jews. And so in order to try to smooth over the relationship, Herod returns Jesus to Pilate, mocking Jesus and paving the way for this political relationship to essentially heal all at the expense of Jesus. So just think about that for a second. You know, I don't know all, obviously, that is behind Jesus calling Antipas a fox, but it's certainly a, uh, uh, not a term of esteem. And, and it certainly uh, is in line with the reality that, that Antipas is doing all that he can to continue to claim power and seize power and authority. 
power and authority that, quite frankly, was never given to him. He is so bent on this power and authority that he is completely blinded by who Jesus Christ is and willing to, to use him as a political pawn in order to, to strike allegiance and alliances at the expense of the Savior. In Acts chapter 4, verse 27, you can write that down, records Herod's role as one of the chief, next to Pilate, on one of the chief persecutors, causers of the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Jesus is saying, you know, authorities may have power, but it's only delegated. And oftentimes they go well outside of what has been delegated to them because rulers have limited power. And that is the point in verse 31. The Pharisees say, Go away and leave here, for Herod wants to kill you. And while Jesus' life is being pursued by Herod, Jesus knows and operates according to God's will. Again, what is this to me? This has nothing to do with God's plan right now in the moment. certainly will. And no matter who wants to do what, it isn't going to happen unless God allows it. That's Jesus' attitude. And if God allows it, God has a plan, a mighty, unfailing, unfolding plan. And that's why Peter, frankly, can uh, years later rightly say that after his own failure, he says this in 1 Peter 4, verse 19, Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Peter understood. Peter learned this lesson. Now, he, he didn't understand it here in verse 31 in, in the time frame of Luke, but, but later on, after rejecting Jesus and after coming to full circle with the reality of who he was and where Jesus was going and, and, the, and really the task in front of him, Peter says, it's my responsibility to entrust my soul to a faithful creator. I just have to do right. I just have to do right. And, and he saw this. He saw this in Jesus. Jesus paves the way for this kind of a relationship with the world that will often cause us to suffer under its persecution. And it's easy to forget that the weight of Peter's words shine the brightest when the evil pursuing us is all the darker. And think about this. I mean, this is real in, in Jesus' life. And Jesus demonstrates that uh, there's nothing that's going to distract him or, or delay him from the plan of God in his life. And oh, that we would have that kind of confidence and that kind of, that kind of stand for what is necessary in the days to come. And to think that the Herodian family and everything that we just outlined when we took some time to do is really only the tip of the iceberg of their darkness. I mean, you can, you can read volumes. I didn't even touch on all of the craziness, certainly in just of two men of, of, of many in that line who are dark, dark, evil authorities. And yet, this is the... This is the culture in which the church was born, frankly. And so it's always been the, the church's st struggle and privilege and responsibility to work through difficult and dark circumstances to come out all the more brighter 
with a faithful creator. And so, really, if we look at the, the history of our, of our church history recently, within the last several hundred years of, of American Christianity, in our context, we have been outstandingly blessed. But it is no doubt that things may get darker someday, as, as many are feeling even now. And, and it is not for us to crawl into holes and for us to raise the white flag and, and, and for, us to, for, for us to just walk around uh, negative and dispelling and being discouraged about the things that are happening in front of us. No, th- those are discouraging things. And, 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 and as we feel about them, it, it's, it's because in some sense those are true and, it, it's, and it's real, it's reality. But at the same sense, we have to come to a, a higher calling, a 1 Peter 4, 19 calling in our life that, that we've just got to continue to do right, just like our Savior taught us to do in the face of the Pharisees delivering the news that Herod wants him dead. What does Jesus do? God has a mighty, unfailing, unfolding plan. And I'm going to pursue that. And I'm going to pursue that. And so that is for us. So rulers may, uh, may certainly have, they certainly have limited authority. They may certainly abuse their delegated authority. But they're also going to distort what is true to gain more authority. Think about the irony of this in verses 33 and 34. Jesus is working his way unto Jerusalem. And, and he says, Nevertheless, I must journey out today and tomorrow and the next day, for it cannot be that a prophet would perish outside of Jerusalem. Think about that. Think about that statement. What is Jerusalem to the, to the Jewish faith? It's everything. It's the geographic center. It's the locus. And, and don't forget that only, it was only one generation ago that the temple was built. And so there's all kinds of pride and, 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 and uh, uh, certainly a, a reality of what Jerusalem is to the Jewish faith. <laughs> and yet, Jesus says, you know, it's just to be that a prophet would perish in Jerusalem. That's just how it is. Then he says, with great emotion, a double, a double address here, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem. It's very prophet-esque, isn't it? You know, it's a, it's a, it's a warning, warning. What, it's, a, it's a compassion and a plea that prophets would have. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those sent to her. Uh, how, how's that going to be uh, revered in, in the pride of, of the Jewish faith, in the central location of of all that is holy for the Jewish religion. That's not going to go over well, but this is the reality, that it is true that Jerusalem is always, always the center and always, always the figure of the distraction and the distortion of God's plan. And it has been since the very beginning. And history bears witness to the perversion of righteousness in, in a religious sense. 
Right? I mean, that's really what we're, we're, we're coming to understand here when Jesus brings up Jerusalem and, and the force behind Jerusalem. It's, it's, it is the very seat of God's law, yet it is the very seat that threatens God's reign. And so it is often the case that the motives and the distortions of men are veiled by the curtain of religiosity. And that's true today, isn't it? It was true in Jesus' time. It was true over 200 years ago when Charles Dickens, in his A Christmas Carol, says this. And and I have to just admit to you, I know it's not Christmas time, but this this just just leaped out the pages in my thinking that that there's there's not a very uh, better illustration uh, literally, that, uh, from literature, than, than, this, than this struggle that we have with the abuses of religion. And one of kind of Dickens' motifs underneath the Christmas carol was to take a jab at the, the religiosity of the day under false pretenses. And he says this of Scrooge. Scrooge says this after being taken above London with the ghost of Christmas present. And they're kind of overviewing London. And, and Scrooge says, Indeed, not many mortals are granted a heavenly perspective of man's world. And the ghost says, Yes, it is quite beautiful. And Scrooge says, Spirit, these poor people. So he's looking down and have no means to cook their food, and yet you seek to close the only places in which they can warm their meager meals every seventh day. And the ghost of Christmas present says, Hear me, Scrooge. There are some upon this earth of yours who claim to know me and my brothers. And so he's talking about, you know, the spirit of peace and on earth and those things that are listed during Christmas time. He says, uh, uh, there are some on this earth of yours who claim to know me and my brothers and do their deeds of ill will and selfishness in our name. These so-called men of the cloth are as strange to me and my kin as if they never lived. Charge their doings to them, not to us. And so, whether it's 200 years ago, whether it's today, whether it's in Jesus' time, there is a veil of religiosity, and yet only to abuse, frankly, men. Only to abuse men. You know, there's, there's something that's kind of unfolding uh, today with a well-known apologetist. Apologist, excuse me, and uh, it, it's coming to light that uh, he is—he has used his power and his influence and his—and and essentially the, the 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 credits of his name to abuse potentially it seems like hundreds and hundreds of women uh, and have a have a perverse sexual uh, reality to his life after claiming the Lord Jesus Christ. It is those kind of people that Jesus is talking about. The, the merely religious so that they can, they can abuse, so that they can fulfill the, the power 
the power grab in their life. And so here Jesus calls Herod a fox, and he is displaying these realities of who Herod is. And he says God's plan is much mightier than that. And don't forget that God's plan not only is mighty, it's, it's superlative in that sense, but it, it is also unfolding. This isn't the first time that God's loving plan has been rejected. And uh, deceit and distortion do not threaten God's plan. Verse 31 makes that clear when the Pharisees say, Go away, leave here, for Herod wants to kill you. You know, there's two options for us to consider when, when the Pharisees come to Jesus and they warn him. <laughs> you know, e- e- either, you know, this is the, the, the one time that they are, that they are uh, uh, on Jesus' side, which, by the way, would be the only time out of 26 other times in Luke's gospel alone that the Pharisees are mentioned. And every other time, 26 other times in Luke's gospel, they are mentioned with a negative more motivation towards the Lord Jesus Christ. So my guess is this is probably not the sole exception here. It's more likely that they are in collusion with Herod. And they're trying to do Herod a favor and gain some clout and some power of their own in his eyes by removing Jesus off the scene without Herod having to actually go through a trial and kill Jesus. Because that obviously wouldn't go well for uh, some of the Jewish population who are following Jesus at the time. And so it's interesting that there's deceit and distortion here. And yet that's not going to, that, that kind of interaction, that, that, that kind of undercurrent isn't going isn't to thwart God's plans. It's just not. He says, go away and leave here for Herod wants to kill you. And, and he says to them, go and tell that fox, right? I'm going to keep on going. There's nothing that he's going to be able to do to stop God's plan. There are clear directives to God's plan. And Jesus says it, it would be in verse 33, for it cannot be that a prophet would perish outside of Jerusalem. And, and, and Jesus is certainly speaking of himself here. He's, he's speaking certainly historically. I mean, there are several prophets that we know of that died in Jerusalem. We know Jeremiah was persecuted in Jerusalem. And certainly Jesus as prophet, right, warning and telling folks to come and repent would and must perish in Jerusalem. And so God's plan is not going to be thwarted by any kind of any kind of power grab. And though rejected, God's plan still unfolds. And that's what we see exactly here in verse 34. When Jesus says, it's the city that kills the prophets and stones those sent to her. Now obviously the city doesn't do that. It's the people of the city representing these religious but fake people that, that stone those sent to her. And here's the force of it. How often I wanted to gather your children together. Like a hen gathers her brood under her wings. And you would not have it. You know, God is pictured here as a hen gathering God, as a tender, loving, 
almost maternal in its picture, isn't it? And it's important for us to understand that, that God's chosen people, Israel, <laughs> as a nation, rejected this kind of watch care. And it's an incredible lesson for us today to make sure that we do not fight the grace of God in our life. And what are some of these graces of God in our life? Well, one that we, we enjoy multiple times a week is the worshiping and gathering together and fellowshipping together. We ought not fight that. We ought not, we ought not disdain that. We ought not grow weary of that. That is a, that is a hen-gathering purpose in our life, if I can say that. You know, teens, I often tell you that it is a, I don't say it this way, but in this context, it is a hen-gathering purpose in your life that God gave you your parents. That is the grace of God in your life. And though you hit and you butt and, and you fight and, and, and you're striving at times and you're not sure why they want you to do certain things, just know that whatever it is they want you to do, that is, that is probably most certainly, if it aligns with God's word, it is, it is a grace of God in your life. And as we continue, folks, to, to try to study the Bible well together and, and form those relationships, let's not fight those and let's not, let's not grow weary of those. And, and, and frankly, let's, let's not make it so so personal that it's all about me and how I get along with someone. No, sometimes the person that God has put in your life to study the Bible with you is the person that God wants you to learn from. Whether you're the disciple or the discipler, it's the person that you are to, that you are to, to love and, and to watch and to learn from. They might not be the superstar over there, but it's God's hen-gathering purpose in your life. And certainly no one individual is perfect. But we can see here that God is even using the twisted, distorted, deceiving methods of rulers and authorities to even bring about God's ultimate plan of marvelous grace. And so sometimes we would rather pick up stones, right, and sever the relationships that God brings to us because that's the easiest thing to do. Because it's the most expedient thing to do when they are really part of the warp and woof of his undeserved grace in our lives. And so don't you experience that after a particularly hard week and, and trying weekend when we gather together? It's not because it's easy or we don't have anything else to do, right? But one of the highlights of our week of gathering together is because, because that is one time where we can see God doing amazing things with each, uh, of each other. And we can see that God is in the hen gathering, laying his wings over us kind of business, is provided so many ways to care for us, yet we often push them away. And that is a lesson we need to learn here. Let's not do that like uh, ch the children of Israel of old. We must learn from Jesus' assessment of them. 
and say, God, time and time and time and time and time again, wanted to gather you like a hen gathers her brood under his wings, and yet you rejected it. So what are you rejecting this week in God's hen-gathering purposes? That's a good question for us. Because it's all part of his unfailing, unfolding, mighty plan. And so not only do we see God's mighty plan, not only do we see it's unfolding regardless of the, the, the seed and the deception around us, but God's plan is unfailing. In other words, it will come. It didn't fail. It's currently unfolding, and it will come. There are results to rejecting God, and we see that here in verse 35. Behold, your house is left to you desolate. And I say to you, you will not see me until the time comes when you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Your house is going to be desolate. That is the result of rejecting God's unfailing plan. And yet we also see here the finality. And so, and so, you know, when we say that's the result, I guess I should go back to that real quick. When we say that's the result, that means, as, as we understand in the context here of Luke chapter 13, that God's kingdom is not yet. That it will come, and that's a certainty, but it has not yet come. Certainly Christ uh, uh, offers the kingdom, I, I believe he, he does that throughout his ministry, but formally uh, in Luke chapter 19 in particular, and so we're, we're going to maybe turn there here in a second uh, during the triumphal entry, but, but this is a reality that, that, that because Jews, Israel, rejected the kingdom, the house is left desolate. And think about all the figures of that. Certainly spiritually, certainly in Jerusalem, certainly at the temple. And so that is true, and they're reaping those whirlwinds even yet today. But the time will come. And this is the qu a quotation from Psalm 118. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Well, and they're declare, uh, Jesus says that they will declare this. They're, they're not declaring this now. That's clear in the context. It's clear in the context that they aren't declaring that in Luke chapter 19. So let's go there. That's the other uh, uh, time that uh, we see this quotation from Psalm 118. And we know Jesus is coming and riding into Jerusalem. And in verse 38 of Luke chapter 19... Uh, we see the crowd shouting, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. In verse 39, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebu rebuke your disciples. But Jesus answered, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. And in verse 41, here it is. When he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city, and he wasn't rejoicing, because they had missed who he was. They had rejected what he was bringing. And he wept over it. And he said, If you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace. Remember? That's what they're crying out for. Psalm 118. But now they have been hidden 
from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw a barricade against you. Here's the rejection. Here's the house being desolate and surround you and hem you in on every side. And they will level you to the ground. Boy. And your children within you. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another. Because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. So it's clear. It's clear in Luke chapter 19. It's clear here in Luke chapter 13. That this is not the time. They do not truly call out for him. So Luke Jesus in Luke chapter 13 is saying that there is a time that the kingdom will come. That time is not yet. That there will be an offer and the offer will be rejected. And while Israel rejects, don't forget, there is a certain and future hope. But that hope is conditional on the acceptance as Jesus as the Messiah. In other words, it's not until the, the Jews say, Blessed is he who comes. Blessed is the Messiah, the one whom God has sent. And that is squarely Jesus. This is true from an Old Testament perspective. This is certainly true, and you can kind of cross-reference Acts chapter 3, verses 19 and 21, the, the reality that, that Israel failed to repent and turn and recognize Jesus as the Messiah. And so we have to be thankful here that we have been included in God's mighty, unfolding, unfailing plan. And our inclusion in it certainly is uh, now in the church age and the mystery that is now revealed. The church in Ephesians chapter 3, the, the new covenant that causes us to have new hearts to be transformed in Jesus Christ. And this gives us a perspective on people, doesn't it? Some hearts will never change. Indeed, they can't because they reject Jesus Christ. And even those hearts that were, that were served with a silver spoon, like the children of Israel, and we can see why there's so much temptation today to water down the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel is not easy. The gospel calls people to repent and place their faith in Jesus Christ. A complete upside-down change of life. A complete change of direction. And it, and, and it isn't works-based, performance-based realities. It is, it is the fact it's transformational-based. <laughs> and unfortunately, my friends, if people will never come to Jesus on Jesus' terms. And obviously we understand the Holy Spirit is working and moving and doing that through the Word of God. But if, if they won't do it, they cannot, and there's nothing that we can do to help them. And so that gives us a perspective on our efforts. We certainly give those efforts, but, but at the end of the day, it is God's business is God's business. It gives us a perspective on our church. You know, you look around, and, and I'm preaching to an empty auditorium this evening. 
But when I'm here on Sunday morning and, and I see us gradually coming back and increasingly so, and I see this room filled up, those socially distanced, and that room filled up, those socially distanced, and rooms upstairs starting to fill up, but socially distanced. I think, wow, isn't it amazing what God is doing here at Grace Church of Menor? Can you believe it? He is transforming hearts anew in Jesus Christ. He did that in my life. He did that in your life. Praise God. And he's still doing that. In fact, we were in a pastoral meeting this morning, and we, we said, oh, yeah, so-and-so got saved. Oh, yeah, we've got to send out a new birth announcement. Why do we send out those new birth announcements? That was genius, by the way when Pastor Tim had that brain burp. Because it is so critical that we know that God is in the business and he is doing it today. And every time we gather together, we see that hen-gathering goodness of God. And we remember that God is in the business. God is in the business. And it's an amazing thing because we don't deserve it one bit. One bit. This gives us a perspective in our Christ that there are rejectors, that there are rejectors, and that is who we would be outside of him. So marvelous grace of God in our life. I would not be the person I am. I wouldn't even be a pastor here if it wasn't for this church, frankly. Because there's no way I wanted to get into that. I still look in the mirror and say, can I really be a pastor? Do you know who I am? But as Jesus Christ continues to transform me and use you in my life, we are so critical for each other. It's because that's how God has designed it and who we are in Jesus Christ. And so we are reminded we were reminded that no one in this place is perfect. No one is deserving of God's grace. But yet, he has done it to us all who claim Jesus as our Savior. And we're not anomalies. We're not anomalies. It's, I'm not making this stuff up. I see other people whose lives are transformed and I'm encouraged. And sometimes in my doubt, I look to them and I say, God's grace is good. I can do it too. This chapter is kind of like Jesus preparing us to walk out in a zero degree whiteout blizzard with negative 30 degree wind chills. So this is February. And we're having a cold spell. And so this was on my mind. It will be disorienting. Can't see through a blizzard. You've driven in whiteouts. It will be hard to catch your breath just because of the cold. I, I was chatting with runners and saying, how are you running in this? And, 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 and one of my friends said, you won't, I, I don't even think I, I could. I, if it weren't for somebody else that I was running with, I don't think I would have even tried because it's so hard to breathe, it's that cold. And, and we've all been, you know, walking out the, the church building and, and this, this, the, the airport right behind us and, and the winds can just really ramp up and it's kind of like a wind funnel in our parking lot. And, and we've actually had to, to fix the, the door arm on, on the, the door because, some, because sometimes the wind will just take the door and just rip it right off, the door arm, not the, the hinges, thankfully. It stays on, and our church building is still up. So if you haven't come back yet, still come. We have a church. We have doors. Uh, but, but, but the point 
is you walk out in 30 degree wind chill and not only can you not breathe, it's like the wind gets sucked out of you. You get, the wind is knocked out of you. It's disorienting. It's hard to breathe. It's knocked out of us, our breath. But it is possible to move on if you've got the right equipment and the right plan. And we have been pressed to the person this year. We've at times been disoriented. It's been hard to catch our breath. And often the wind has just been brutally knocked out of us. And time and time again this year. But as a church, we have done well. And your, your leadership here, your, the pastors and the elders, all agree that we have done well navigating this blizzard of intense political and health crisis. Or crisis. And it's just like the disciples around Jesus. You know, these kind of circumstances seem to mount up and and seem to knock the wind out of us and, and cause us to be disoriented. But when times are incredibly pressing and the stressors are there, Jesus says, remember, even in all that, there is a mighty, unfailing, unfolding plan of God. Peter needed that reminder, as we mentioned already, that God is a faithful creator, and our task is to entrust ourselves to him as we continue to do right. Peter needed that reminder after the Lord Jesus Christ ascended. His disciples are given that reminder here. In Luke chapter 13, it is for us to take, and for us to be encouraged tonight. God has a mighty unfolding, unfailing plan. So continue to obey him and entrust yourself to him while we do right. That's our part in this plan, is to know God, to serve him, to worship him, to learn about him, to tell others about him, and to trust him. Father, tonight I pray that you would help us to do just those things. In the moment, in the circumstance, it can be hard. It can be disoriented. It can disorienting. It can be discouraging. But nonetheless, it is our task to look to the plan of God. And that plan ultimately, nothing has changed. From the Old Testament to the New Testament, nothing has changed in terms of your kingdom. It was foretold by prophets of old. It was foretold by the prophet Jesus, the priest and the king Jesus. And it is coming. So help us to orient our lives according to the king. Help us to remember the mighty, failing, unfolding plan of God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And good night.